Good morning to you all. This morning we will begin our study in the book of Malachi, and today we will be reading from chapter 3 mainly. We will begin in Malachi 2, verse 17, and we will read down to uh, chapter 3, verse 6. Again, that's Malachi 2.17 is our beginning point, and we're going to read down to chapter 3, verse 6. Hear now the word of the living God. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the God of justice behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offsprings in offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. And as in former years, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord God, that your word accomplishes your will, does not return to you void. Lord, we pray that your word will go forth powerfully and would reach our hearts in such a way it would bring about change. Change leading to salvation, change leading to sanctification for your glory. Lord, We pray that you would increase as I decrease. 
May you speak to your people through your word. Speak to their hearts. Speak to their lives that you might get the glory. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would go before us. In Jesus' name, amen. For a title um, to help us uh, as a guide, I've chosen, uh, do you believe in the God of justice? In our culture, people around us, even amongst us, and we ourselves, we, we're constantly faced with, with sin. And can you imagine the sin that God has to see on a regular basis, day in and day out? And in the midst of sin, among sinners, we can begin to see how people can easily become cynical. And I say cynical for way of definition. Cynical means believing that people are motivated by self-interest and they don't trust anybody. In other words, it's as if people are walking to the world, walking through the world, and everything and everybody stinks. Cynical. There's no good in anything. Distrustful of human sincerity or our integrity. Well, during this time period, the book of Malachi, history repeats itself. It reports from scripture that people were unrepentant, corrupt, routinely getting divorced and committing social injustices. Sinners, we know by experience, sometimes cause weariness to others and to God. Have you ever been around a person and you know they're living a lifestyle of sin and they just come and dump on you? And now you feel like, oh, life is terrible. Well, we have the same picture here where the people are sinning in all kinds of ways and they're causing weariness to their brothers and sisters around them and to God. And so sinners sometimes cause weariness. People can change and become pleasing in the sight of God only when God changes within them bring about change within them that leads to repentance because no fallen human being can bring about godly change. A person has to be born again in order to be changed and made new. So in in chapter 2, verse 17 of Malachi, the text reveals that the Israelite people had become doubters and suspicious of God. 
And in this case, looking back to Malachi 2, 7 through 9, the priests should have been instructing the people according to the way of God. Instead, they caused people to fall deeper into sin. This led them to practice corruption in their dealings with God and with each other. The people eventually became fickle and they became faithless. Then instead of being true and trustworthy. In verse 17, uh, the text shows us how how the people in particular sinned against God. The prophet states, you have wearied the Lord with your what? Words. Then Malachi, not allowing the people to slide on this, gave the people's response saying, but you say, how have we wearied him? And Malachi's response to them was by saying with your words, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. We know that's that's a lie. We know that that's not true. They're also saying, and by asking, if God is just, if God is good, where is he? Where is the God of justice? People became skeptics and doubters for all kinds of reasons. Some feel this way towards the government. In our day, some feel this way towards Young people, they don't trust any young people. They don't, they don't know enough. They don't have any experience. Have you ever been around a person like that? Some feel this way towards old people, vice versa. Oh, you're old. You don't know anything. How can you tell me? We don't live like that anymore. So you can see no matter what the facts are, no matter what facts you have or how much truth you tell, there will always forever be a skeptic, a cynic, and a doubter. Some might even go so far to say, I don't care what you say. At that point, believe them and leave them. Why? Because how can you have an illogical, nonsensical conversation with someone who doesn't accept truth? One theologian said, all cynicism is sad, but one type of cynicism is sadder than all the rest, and that is cynicism towards God, the only one who has never done anything to deserve it. And the saddest cynicism towards God is that which comes from people who profess to know him and love him, unquote. So why do people disbelieve God as if he can fail? The Bible And bare logic teaches all men that if God is perfect, a person must reach a conclusion that agrees with the perfect nature of God, concluding that God does things 
that disqualify him as God is nonsense. People want to live in their own little worlds putting God on trial. They demand answers as if he's on trial. Men and women women speak to God as if he owes them an answer. The Israelites were saddened, irritated, and offended because in their opinion, God was not moving fast enough. These Israelites probably felt as though they were running out of time. And in the process of time, they begin to become discouraged, disappointed, and in despair. This led them to believe that other nations had a greater success than them and that the long time coming Messiah would continue to be in in non-existence. Obviously, these people forgot about what God did for them in past generations. How he kept them in the wilderness and fed them for 40 years, generation after generation, bringing them into the promised land. They had forgotten what God has done. Where are you today? Have, have you forgotten God and you have found yourself in a place of despair and discouragement as if God is not alive and he cannot help you? And so this is the place where the people are. And instead of reflecting upon the goodness of God, they took his timing as failing to keep his promises. So because you're not acting fast enough, this must not going to happen. And some of us may be guilty of that because we don't see any particular fruit during the time that we want fruit. We believe that God is not working. So there's something that we can learn from the Israelites. According to Malachi's report, the people's feelings toward God wearied him. This begs the question, can God get wearied? Maybe you thought about that as we were passing through the text. But let's look at this. In Isaiah 40, verse 28, it says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends, and, uh, the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. You may have thought about that verse. Or you may have thought about Psalm 121. The word of God says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. If these verses of scripture be true, in what sense is God wearied? The text clearly teaches that God does not become wearied. We know that people can weary the Lord In this way, by continuing in sin, 
by continuing in sin. God loves his people. He cares for them and is patient with them, but he is wearied when his people continue to stumble in sin as the Israelites were doing. They were not trusting the Lord. They were challenging his character, his nature, everything that he stands for. And so in this time period, the God who loves his people, he cares for them and is patient with them. He became wearied because the people continue in sin. God is never physically and emotionally drained as we are as human beings at times in our lives. He is sovereignly and providentially working out his plan for our lives and for the whole order of creation. So in that sense, God is never tired when it comes to his ability to caring for the whole of creation. Malachi was instead referring to the people's practice of sin. So when we think about the nature of God in light of the context of scripture, there's no contradiction. With that being said, God may get tired of seeing his people in sin, but God God loves people even when they are sinning. Why? Because God is collecting those who are his for his glory. He's sanctifying them. He's using all of creation for his glory according to his plan and his purpose. And in that sense, God never gets tired of loving his creation. And so therefore, he keeps his promises. For example, in Exodus 6, Verse 5 through 8, the Lord says, Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, and then he says, I am the Lord. As Christians, we have no reason to doubt God or to become skeptics or cynics because the cross of Christ demonstrates the love of God and this love removes all doubt. And so as as Christians, we know that doubting God It's not helpful. Doubting God is a foolish business. We're never helped in doing so. And so we must ask ourselves, why do we doubt God? Now, we're not saying that it's not, we cannot ask questions. 
That's, that's not doubting the power of God. That's wanting clarity for what God is doing in our lives. And so we're able to pray and ask God for clarity and for understanding as we go through life, as we go through trials, as we make decisions, we're able to rely upon God and seek his wisdom and seek first his kingdom that we might glorify him in the life that we live. But doubting and and being disrespectful as if God cannot, this is what the Israelites were doing. They had fallen into sin. And so, why do we doubt? We doubt God because we are weak, finite creatures who are prone to sin. If we find ourselves doubting God and in this place, not saying that it is impossible for Christians to doubt, we do doubt. We do fall sometimes into sin. We, uh, we struggle with the inside man within us. And so the sinful nature living within us causes us to doubt and to sin against a holy and righteous God. But what are we to do? We're to repent, we're to turn, we're to confess our sins because God is a forgiving God. And so anytime we neglect our responsibility, it's easier for us to easily fall into sin. When we are when we are arming ourselves with the word of God and we are living in such a way where we are honoring God, living a life in obedience to him, we're arming ourselves and it's not so easily for us to fall into sin. The scripture teaches us, get rid of the weight and sin which so easily besets us. If we think about Paul, it's as if we're running in a race. And can you imagine running in a race with weighted down pants and a weighted down vest with weights around your neck? We cannot be effective if we're trying to live for the glory of God if we're allowing the issues of life to weigh us down. That's what the Israelites did. They allowed their circumstances, which was God was not acting fast enough. They wanted to see some results. It's easy that that when when sickness comes upon our bodies or, or, or whenever we have lost something, whether it's a love run, uh, whether it's a friend, whether it's a job or whatever it is, it's, we can get caught up into that if we don't see all of life beneath the sovereignty of God. You see, the cross is where we rest because God is sovereign. And so, as Christians, we must beware of this because the Israelites did not acknowledge God as he deserves. They misrepresented his actions as a failure by thinking that God wouldn't keep his word by sending the Messiah. And so here we have with just that background in place, now we can see the Lord's response to the Israelites. We can see how everything unfolded. 
And so we, we begin in verse 17 with the cynical question, where is God, the God of justice? Can, can you see yourselves in, in their shoes questioning God as if he can fail at, or as if he forget or as if he somehow don't know your situation? We, we, we feel that way, if we're honest. We feel that way as if God is in a distance and, and we don't sense his presence. We, we can feel that way sometimes. We can come alongside the Israelites and feel with them and understand with them. It's, it's what we do with the feelings when we get them, right? That, that, that's the key. And so... Some of you may be feeling this way even now. You may be in a situation right now. And so the question is, are you anxious? Are you worried? Are you overly concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow? Here's what the word of God says. In Romans 8, 6 through 7, the text says, for, set, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace. If we worry, it will run us in the ground because we're wearied and are not trusting in God. But the, the text goes on. It talks about, but to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace. Is as if the storm is raging all around us and we're sitting in the airport resting as if nothing's going on. Because ultimately, we know that God is in control. Verse 7 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to, to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So, so you see why the spirit of God is necessary, how we must trust him. So submitting to God and setting our minds on him in all things is the beginning of living a peaceful life. Some of us are not resting well at night. Because we're worried, or uh, because we're concerned about the next job, or, or, or something at the job, or somebody have taken, you know, my position, or the children, whatever it is, the home, we can find ourselves not resting in the Lord. But listen to Philippians four six to eight. The text says, "Do not." Be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable if there is any excellence if there is anything worthy of praise what think about these things so a healthy mind thinks on the things of God in response to the question asked by the Jews God answered them in Malachi 3 
But they did not expect God to answer in this way. God is unveiling his divine plan of redemption through his prophet by way of a prophecy or a foretelling of future events. In this case, he reveals his justice against sin and the one he's sending to prepare the way for when the Savior will come to save his people from their sins. We've read earlier, this person is none other but John the Baptist. He's the one that is coming before the Lord. During this moment in history, the Lord Jesus is with the Father since eternity past. But at the Father's will and during the Father's appointed time, he will send his Son to save and to judge the world. Look again at verses 1 through 6. There we see... The text says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Or who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the idolaters, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts for I the Lord do not change therefore you O children of Jacob are not consumed and so it's clear that the Lord did not overlook their concerns He did not overlook the concerns of the people. God does all things according to his divine purpose, according to his divine time in all eternity. And so God was well aware of the people. Instead, God comforts his people by letting them know that he is indeed sending the Messiah and he will send another messenger before him to prepare the way. In the text, the Messiah is also known as the messenger of the covenant. We know Christ to bring the new covenant and people will be saved by a new and living way, by the covenant, through a blood covenant, a once and for all covenant that was dealt with on the cross so that God might save his people. In Jeremiah 31 and 31, the text says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
And so this was already planned according to God's timing. Ezekiel 37 and 26, the text says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And so we have this comfort of the new covenant. And so when we drink of the wine and we eat of the bread, we're reminded of that new covenant that have come, the once and for all covenant that came through no other but the Lord Jesus the Christ. This is the one, the Christ, who proclaims the new covenant. Israelites believed that the Messiah was coming. But they also became unstable and inconsistent in their beliefs. Our theology matters. It governs how we practice. It governs how we live. It governs how we function. It governs how we think. So theology is important. What we understand about the character of God matters. And so here we see that the Israelites believed that the Messiah was coming, but they also became inconsistent about the timing of his coming. And that led them to a point where they became cynics and skeptics and doubters and they turned their backs on God. So in their minds, yes, the Messiah would come and rain judgment on all their enemies. That's what they wanted. They wanted God to take over the land and we're going to rule the whole world. This was the mindset of the Israelites. But God had something else in plan. They had it all wrong. God was sending his son to save his people. That same salvation would also come to the Gentiles too. There's no other hope outside of Christ. No one can be saved apart from Christ. Those of faith in the times of the Old Testament looked forward to faith in Christ We, however, look back by faith to the cross of Christ and both are saved by the blood of Christ. So though fallen humanity can make God weary at times, God is compassionate. God is merciful. He still loves and uses mankind to glorify himself. God is able to use the weak things of the world to glorify himself. God, according to his divine plan, chose to send his messenger in preparation for his coming. Today we see that there are many false prophets who have claimed to be some kind of messenger. Many of those who teach a false gospel claim to have been sent by God, but God authenticates his word through the truth of scripture, and we see it throughout the word of God as the prophets So therefore speaks, thus said the Lord. The message 
It's clear the message of the new covenant is proclaimed through the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the messenger of the new covenant. In verses 2 through 5, we see the nature in which the Messiah comes. You can imagine how the people felt when they found out that the Messiah would finally come, but then their world was twisted upside down. Because it wasn't what they had expected. The plans were shattered. Malachi revealed to them that the Messiah was coming, but not in the way they thought. The the prophet states in verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? Or who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. In other words, the Messiah will come to save, but he will also come to cleanse. No one can endure the day nor stand in the day of his appearing. The cynical, the skeptical, the doubter that is outside of Christ will not be able to stand before the God who is the righteous judge. In verse 3 of our text, it states, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So unless the believer is refined and purified by Christ, they cannot please God. We see this idea in verse 4 when the prophet says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And so it's after the cleansing. And in like manner, those of us who are not born again, if you're here today and you do not know Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you cannot approach him unless you are purified, unless you are refined through the blood of Christ. And so during the first coming of the Lord, he came to bring salvation. But during his second coming, he's coming as a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap to also not only cleanse and refine, but also to bring about justice. Justice. So which side do you rather be on? Would you rather be in Christ and know him as Lord and and Savior? Or would you rather be on the outside of Christ and know him as judge? If you're outside of Christ and would like to know him as Savior and not as judge, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe his message of salvation and be saved. He died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again from the grave. The Lord is a God of comfort and peace to those who believe in him. But he's judgment and wrath to those who do not believe in him alone for salvation. Don't think you have plenty of time because you're young. Don't think you have the rest of your life to decide because 
Sometimes life is not as long as you think it is. If you're outside of Christ, don't put off what you can do today. For tomorrow is not promised. Because the judgment of God is swift, and it states this in verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sinners. He names a few. Witness against the sorcerers, against the idolaters, against those who swear falsely have ever lied before. Adulterers against those uh, against those who oppress the hard worker in the wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the, jer- the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. To say it another way, sinners beware for the day of judgment is coming swiftly. Or come to Christ and be saved. There's no middle ground. The judgment of God will be swift and it will be at a time where you will not be ready. A picture this in your mind. You remember the days of Noah. And you remember as the ark was being put together, people was living their lives the way, and then the door closed. The rain begins to fall. Water came up in the ground. Too late, you see. And so there's a strong warning in the text that judgment is coming to those who are outside of Christ. No one, no one can stand in his presence as innocent. We need a savior. We're all guilty before a holy and righteous God. Therefore, no one can stand before God without sin. The Lord is standing on behalf of those who believe in him. He's standing to justify those who have come to know him through faith. The son of God, who is the savior of his people, is the only qualified person to save sinners. So the question is, do you believe in the God of justice? To some, it will be sweet. It would be pleasant because we know that the gospel is good news. It's pleasing to our ears to know him as Lord and Savior. God is the just judge. He will consume all forms of corruption, contamination, and vulgarity. Christ alone saves and is man's only hope. And in verse 6, he closes it out. For I the Lord do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Those who are in Christ are safe. God is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. Praise the Lord if you are in Christ, but fear him 
if you're not. I want to conclude with these encouraging words from 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 17, The Perseverance of, of the Saints. Paragraph one. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect unto can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God without repentance from which source he still begets and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality and though many storms and floods arise and beat against them yet shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon notwithstanding through unbelief and the temptations of Satan the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clothed and obscured from them, yet he is still the same. And they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, listen, where they shall enjoy, enjoy their purchased possession. Listen to this. By being engraved upon the palms of his hands, And their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. That's the hope we have in Christ. Now we can lie down with hope, with comfort, because there is one who has us in his hands. Literally. His palms have been beaten and he have been laid out on the cross and our names have been written in the book of life. And God says, therefore, peace be with you. I have overcome the world. Peace be with you. Beloved, you are purchased by the blood of Christ. Go and live in peace, for he has purchased you. Be comforted with the word of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Use it. Sanctify your people. In Jesus' name, amen.